welcome back to another episode of the Brew Deck Podcast. I am your host, Heather Jared. I am joined again by Cheyenne Weiser. Hi, Cheyenne. Hi, how's it going? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I'm doing great. I've had my coffee and uh, I'm ready for the day today. I feel like I could use probably about five more coffees, but we're <laughs> we're going to get there. Uh, we're also joined today by CJ Penzone. Uh, CJ is our newest co-host on the Brew Deck podcast. Welcome, CJ. Hey, happy to be here. Uh, so CJ is also a territory manager here with Country Malt Group. Uh, give us a little background on you, CJ, before we dive into today's episode. Yeah, I've been working here for about two years. Um, I'm currently managing uh, Western Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, and Michigan, the lovely Rust Belt, as some people call it. Um, and previous to working here, I had spent five years in production brewing, uh, working my way up from a part-time packaging assistant uh, all the way up to head brewer. Um, and oh, in between, I spent two years working for my family painting business. Awesome. Well, we're very happy to have you on the podcast team. Um, some people might recognize CJ's voice um, from our most recent uh, Friendsgiving episode where we did beer and food pairing. Uh, he was also on Tales from the uh, Brew Deck episode back uh, in season two. So go back and give us a listen if you want to get a good intro to CJ. All right. Well, today we are going to be chatting about the science behind head retention. Uh, We have a couple of really awesome guests that we're excited to speak with. But before we do that, uh, Heather, you are a certified Cicerone. That is correct. And so you are very passionate about, uh, you know, proper glassware, beer presentation, uh, you know, beer clean glass. Beer clean glass. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And if you ask any of my friends, uh, I'm very passionate about non-frosted mugs as well. I, I agree. That's a line that I draw as well. Unless Thank you're in a dive bar and then, you know. If, if you're in a dive bar and you're drinking a Bud Light or a Coors Light or whatever, absolutely. I don't think you're too worried about head retention if you're in a dive bar. Yeah, but I don't want my nice hazy IPA in a frosted mug or a beautiful stout in a frosted mug. Exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, you have some background here. So if you could, would you tell us a little bit about kind of your knowledge on, you know, proper glassware, um, how to how to present a beer clean glass and all those things in between? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I It's really, really interesting today. Um, both of our guests really, you know, dive into the science and, you know, from start to finish what it takes to have excellent head retention uh, in a beer. Um, and it really is, it begins with, um, you know, ingredient selection down to presentation and glassware that you use when you're serving it to um, a customer. Uh, So yeah, this is something that we do go through when you're studying for your uh, certified Cicerone is beer clean glasses um, and proper glassware. There are proper glasses to be served, um, to use to serve specific beers. And you definitely, you know, want that um, almost tulip style glass you're going to get out of Belgium, which are just those beautiful, again, tulip shaped glasses that have that little uh, space at the top for um, the head retention, the head in the beer. Um, Even the, um, you know, pint glasses coming out of, you know, the English pint glasses uh, that you always see your Guinness kind of poured into that, you know, they have that space in there for the head of the beer, um, you know, to let that aroma come through and and all that good stuff. Um, And uh, beer clean glasses is something that I think you know, everybody's probably experienced when you've gone into a pub or even sometimes the tap room where you're getting these glasses that just, I, A, they're either filled all the way to the top or B, the foam just 
you know, goes away really, really quickly. And a lot of that is because you don't have a beer clean glass. So there could be residual detergent um, on the glass from when you washed it. Sometimes you'll see at the top of the glass, there'll be lipstick, lip gloss stains, um, that kind of like grease and oil. And that can take away from the head of the beer. So there are a few different uh, tests you can do on your glasses to ensure that they are beer clean. There's the sheeting test. So you can dip your uh, pint glass into water or spray it on one of the glass rinsers you'll see at the bar. If the water forms into droplets on the inside, the glass is not beer clean. Uh, that water is then just clinging to like those oil spots or just detergent spots that are in the glass. The water should just coat nicely on um, and evenly on the inside of the glass. Another test that you can do on your glassware to ensure that it is beer clean is the salt test. So you do the same thing, wet the inside of your glass, and then you can sprinkle it with salt. The salt should adhere evenly to the inside of the glass, much like the water would do. If it's not adhering uh, evenly throughout the glass, it does mean that your glass is not clean because it's sticking to different parts of it. I'm not saying that everybody should be salt testing every single glass that they're putting <laughs> out. That would A, take a lot of time, B, leave a lot of salt in your glass. But uh, <laughs> yeah, very time consuming. But these are, you know, ways that you can show what a beer clean glass mm -hmm. is. And then of course, there's the lacing test, which is the funnest one because you actually get to drink beer while you do it. If the, as you drink your beer, if the foam isn't just leaving like a perfect kind of ring form around the glass, your glass is not beer clean. The CO2 will cling to dirty parts of the glass. So if you're having kind of random patterns on the inside of the glass, that means that your glass is not bare clean and you're not going to have the best head retention. Mm. So just a few things to look at. Mm -hmm. I think that lacing is one of my very favorite parts about beer in general. I love seeing good lacing when you're drinking a beer. Oh, it looks amazing. It's beautiful. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think that, you know, we could talk about this all day long if we had the, the time to do so, but I don't want to take up too much more time. So uh, I'm really excited about the guests that we have today. Uh, we are joined by John Downing, who is a professor in the brewing program at Niagara College, and Jeremy Cross, who is the lab manager at Jack's Abbey Craft Loggers in Massachusetts. Let's jump right in. All right. We are excited to be joined now by John Downing. Uh, he is the brewmaster professor of the Bring program at Niagara College in Canada. Uh, welcome, John. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you for joining us today to talk all things head retention. Um, really excited to have somebody from Niagara College on the podcast. Uh, you are popping out some amazing brewers there. Uh, we've we've been doing this for 12 years now, and it, it really is incredible what some of our graduates have gone on to do. That's awesome. It's amazing, in fact. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you ended up at Niagara College, and then a little bit about the Brewmaster program there? Sure. Um, I've, I started brewing when I was 14 years old, so I've been doing this a little while and now 60. Um, I, I started as a home brewer. My dad was a PhD in microbiology and chemistry, and uh, he was a research scientist. Uh, so as a father-son sort of project, we did a beer and wine thing. His wine exploded, my beer turned out okay, and <laughs> I had a hobby when I was 14, making beer. Nice. My first job was I was hired as a cellarman at an, in English pubs looking after real ales when I was 16. I'd never really planned on it being more than a hobby at that point, and I went to university in Birmingham in England, uh, took some intramural courses because I was working at a couple of breweries during vacations and whatever in Birmingham, and, uh, you know, thought, okay, maybe I'll go into the business side of brewing and apply to a few breweries in England like Watney Man Truman and uh, Everides and a few others, and uh, ended up uh, not doing that because I came on holiday to Canada in 1985 to visit my sister, 
And while I was here, I happened to be uh, find out about a uh, craft brewing conference. I think it was the Canadian Small Brewers Association, CSBA, back then, uh, at which Wellington County were uh, opening, uh, and it was announced that brew pubs would be legal. And that night in the pub, Duke of Grafton, I think it was in Guelph, sitting with some sitting on my own, these uh, French Canadian guys came up and asked if we could join and started chatting because they were at the conference too. And they told me, yo, we just bought all the equipment that was on show at the conference and we want to be the first people to uh, open up a brew pub. Um, we have the building. We've already started renovating. We just got the equipment, but we just don't know how to make beer. And I said, well, you know, I, I can make beer. <laughs> uh, and that, that's kind of how I started in Canada. I moved here three months later. Uh, I, I took a Siebel course and uh, had to wait for obviously my uh, landed immigrant status and all that kind of stuff. But three months later, actually February 11th in 1986, uh, I landed in Canada and started opening the first brew pub in Ontario. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> Went on from that to, uh, uh, because I was the first one doing it, I think, you know, people like Great Lakes, I, uh, I helped them on their very first, very, very small system that they had up in Brampton. Half a dozen other breweries in Toronto, craft breweries, uh, brew pubs mostly in that at that point. Uh, and then, uh, you know, moved on from the Atlas, opened up a craft brewery in Newmarket. Um, ran that for a couple of years, opened, started opening up a group brew and premise stores for people. Uh, opened about 24 of those up, I think. And then all told today, I think I've opened about 125 breweries around the world. So, you know, wow. a little bit of uh, world traveling, making beer, making friends and all that kind of stuff. It's been a great, great career. And, uh, you know, sort of the early 2000s, I think it was, traveling was becoming not so much fun anymore after 9-11 and, uh, you know, just the difficulty involved in what was going on and everything. So I decided, you know, well, I, I really love my job. At that point, I'd opened up 100 breweries and that, would, that had been my goal of my company um, and sort of thought, well, I want to keep doing this. How can I do it? And uh, so it came to my head, well, instead of me going to them, have them come to me. And that's uh, I started working on that. I came to Niagara College in 2007 uh, through a mutual acquaintance, an accountant, uh, a good friend of mine. And he uh, said, you should meet and chat to this guy. And Steve Gill was the name of that guy. And he's the manager of uh, the Niagara College Learning Enterprise Corporation, which at the time was just the teaching winery that they'd started in 2000. Um, but, uh, you know, we, I talked to him. He talked to his bosses in the academic side. And uh, we uh, kind of started working on it. We got the approval. We designed the program based on what the industry needed through the Ontario Craft Brewers Association and uh, what the information was available out there at the time, which was you know, mostly graduate courses from you know, UC Davis, uh, Harriet Watt, uh, Nottingham in, in England, uh, and, and the online courses like Siebel and uh, the American Brewing Institute and people like that. And we, went, we had to obviously make something that was... Uh, driven for college. So it's, you know, not postgraduate, not online. It had to be something in person. And we, and being a college, we also wanted to make it practical. And that's how uh, the teaching brewery came into effect. I designed it, built it. Uh, the college had the building done. We got the equipment from Favela here in Niagara Falls. And we uh, got our first 24 students starting, started in uh, September 2010. Now 12, coming on to 13 years later, uh, we just hit 30 classes gone through and over 500 graduates in the industry. 
That's amazing. <laughs> well, I'll say thank you for that because a, even opening breweries all across the world, and we love that. Uh, now my, my graduates are doing it. I think at the last count, we have about uh, thirty brewery owners, thirty breweries owned by graduates, owned and started by graduates. So that's, that's crazy. Cool. Yeah. So I don't count them as in my total, but kind of should. (laughs) It should, it should. You get an assist. You get a good point for that. Well, awesome. Um, So yeah, our topic today, we're talking about head retention and Adam Wilson, um, who works out in your area. And I know he was, um, you know, out there doing some talks at the school recently, um, mentioned you and, and wanted to bring you to our attention that you would be the man to talk about when it comes to the science behind head retention in beer, how to get it, how to keep it, uh, that sort of thing. So can you kind of break down for us um, what can add to, what can provide you with good head retention in beer and how oh, that works? Oh, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm not a research scientist by any means like Dr. Charlie Bamford, who's wrote, written that excellent book foam on beer, um, the technical side of things. I mean, ASPC have wonderful presentations that, that people should check out for the in-depth, uh, you know, scientific side of things. Um, but as a brewer, as a practical brewer, and as you know, a teacher, you know, coming on day-to-day issues with malts, with the hops, with students trying to create certain things, we definitely see, have seen everything and continue to uh, come across new uh, avenues and new challenges when when dealing with you know foam and mm-hmm. uh, basically I mean we're dealing with very simple uh, ideas and it's you know what is a bubble what is foam and it's basically you know protein uh, surrounding a bubble of CO2 so how do we make that better and how do we work it through is really what we're going you know I guess what we're going to chat about here mm-hmm. and uh, you know it, it really starts in the field uh, with the malted barley I mean uh, oh, sorry with the raw barley um you know we, the, the the growing seasons the uh, uh the terroir uh, everything to do with the farming of the product is you know going to be determined um and especially the weather on an annual basis is going to be determining what goes into the malting house and uh, eventually comes into the brewery and you know if it's been a bad year for the farmer it's probably going to be a bad year for the malting company and then a challenging year, should we say, for mm-hmm. the brewers to have to deal with those issues. We had a year a couple of years ago where protein levels were all crazy uh, and we, we had to get malts from all over the world. So every time a, a malt came in, it seemed to be a little bit different, a little bit more uh, protein or less protein. And that's really the thing that we're dealing with when we're dealing with foam is the level of protein in beer. So when you're reading your uh, malt ax- your, your, your malt uh, analysis, uh, you know, the first thing I, my eyes go to is always the protein because I know um, that's going to affect my mashes, that's going to affect my body, that's going to affect my flavor, my uh, foam, and you know everything all the way through. So uh, when when you know the agriculture's had a tough year because of bad weather, uh, you know you're going to have to do something in six months' time when that grain arrives on your doorstep. Yeah, yeah, I think we definitely all saw that in 2021. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely a tough year. And yeah, check your COAs. That's always been something we've been we've been saying. So always check exactly. your COAs. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, and there are things we can do. I mean, obviously, the monsters as the monsters, you guys, they, I mean, Tyler Scholes told, taught me a whole bunch about all this sort of stuff from GW up there. He, he uh, you know, learning what the proteins that are involved. I mean, I think there's five main ones like hordine. Uh, protein Z or Z, if you're south of the border, um, uh, you know, those sort of uh, 
what is it, LTP, liquid transfer proteins, uh, and barley albumin. They, they, they're, they're the main proteins that are involved and some are more critical to uh, head retention and foam in the long run. Um, but, you know, protein as a overall is, is something that you've got to really keep an eye on and uh, make sure that you have the right amount. I mean, I think it should be like minimum 10% and not more than 14% uh in your in your malts as they come in and uh, for a base malt anyway mm -hmm. if the if you're outside those ranges then you've got to do something about it uh and you know that comes into the brewing side which is where we'll you know we'll start being able to you know play around with what we're doing in our in our brew house the other thing obviously coming out of the malt the maltster and the, the malt house is you know the different types of malt i mean over over modified base malts will be, you know, will have a negative effect on, on what we're doing. If it's perfectly modified, if it's, you know, like most uh, European types of malt styles, like Pilsen malts, pale ales, based on that sort of thing, um, even if they're from North America, they will be uh, perfectly modified these days for what we need. But uh, some some malts will come in, uh, could come in a little bit over-modified, six rows, two rows occasionally. Mm -hmm. um, and you just got to keep an eye on, on that COA, as you said. Yeah, always. So what are some malts that you would recommend that are going to have those higher proteins that are going to lead to that nice, fluffy uh, head that we're looking for in beer? Oh, well, I mean, the, the ones that got the good proteins in them and, and also the melanoidins. Um, the, the, those melanoidins are a product of basically uh, proteins and uh, heat uh, you know, being, being scorched or burnt uh, either in the kettle or in the... Uh, um, in the malt house. Uh, so the darker malts tend to be very beneficial for us, more so than crystal malts. Crystal malts are kind of a bit on the, you know, on the negative side, mm -hmm. uh, whereas base malts, on the other hand, are, are, are nicely balanced between, uh, you know, being beneficial or being negative towards uh, brewing, which is why we can modify, we can then, you know, modify what we do in the brew house to make them work better for us. Um, but, you know, the, definitely the darker malts, the richer malts, Anything like over, you know, 80 to 120, uh, lover bond, as long as they're not too crystalline. Uh, the darker, heavier roasted malts, um, you know, black malts and so on, also uh, significantly because of the melanoidin complexes in them will uh, really affect uh, foam. And also the color of the foam, too, which is kind of interesting. Most people look that nice, tight, white, dense foam, which will be from, you know, the, 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 pro the, uh, peptides the proteins in the in the lower level malts roasted malts but the uh if you want that little caramel color or coffee color in your in your phone then you need you know malts from the other end of the scale as well so really you're looking at both ends of the scale as far as malt, malted barley is concerned obviously we can throw in other things uh that other grains that will be uh good for us Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, let's talk about the adjuncts a little bit. When yeah. some of those fun ones. I mean, for barley, if you think about the beers that exhibit in the best, like stouts, it's flake barley, mm -hmm. it's unmalted, unmalted barley with that that extra protein shot, and the heavily modified uh, malts that they have in there, the darker malts, really create that really dense foam uh, that's possible in a, in a stout. Uh, and and on the other end of the scale, from wheat beers uh, and uh, you know wheat malt. Uh, has the uh, the available proteins uh, that could potentially make good foam. There are other things along the way that need to happen, but mm -hmm. precursors are there from the malt side anyway. Uh, and uh, you know you've got to be careful. Of obviously, other you know other adjuncts. You know, straight sugar will give you nothing. 
Uh, rice will give you nothing. Oats will give you some, but most of the oat proteins uh, are more uh, towards the hazy side than towards the mm -hmm. uh, foam positive side, let's say. Um, but, uh, you know, basically we're looking for anything, you know, the polypeptides, the proteins that, that, that will be uh, more beneficial to us as a brewer. And obviously we can do things in the brew house that will modify those grains too. So, you know, the different, the, you know, the different malts, definitely, you get, definitely you choose between them. Uh, if your malt is over modified, you can throw in some chip malt or something like that, because uh, that's a deliberately under modified malt. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it's actually kind of a cool way. We've done a bunch of brews in here where we wanted to really uh, interpret, you know, older medieval, not medieval, but older uh, mid-European uh, styles of beer and English styles of beer. And in order to do that, because the malts are so well modified today, we needed to unmodify them. And by using something like chip malt, it really gets us back to using uh, a, 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 an a, under modified style. An under modified style, yeah. Uh -huh. And that, that means that you can get the different proteins coming back in. Mm -hmm. um, that'll you know give you give you a, 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 a denser foam again, even from a very well or over modified malt. Mm -hmm. So this also has to be quite a balancing act as well, because if you don't particularly want a hazy beer, but you want a beer with a good head retention and good foam on it, you know, this has to be a bit of a balancing act to still be able to produce that clear beer with a good head retention, with a good proteins. Exactly. And, you know, the we, we can we can modify it a little bit in the brew house where we're in during the mash. I mean, pro, mo, most most molds today don't need a don't need a step infusion or rising infusion um, unless you specifically want to isolate out certain proteins or uh, beta glucans. And and we do uh, for some beers like for our wheat beers we definitely do uh, an infusion, the um, right step infusion, and sometimes even a decoction, which we are fortunate to be able to do on our pilot sites here, um, just for the fact that we want to be able to uh, break down some of the larger proteins into smaller proteins to increase the, uh, the foam uh, on on the beer, and we also want those to then drop out. So um, when we get the larger proteins going through into the kettle. Uh, with our heartbreak, obviously that's the, the proteins bonding together and uh, uh, falling out. So we, we do. It's a, it's always like you said. It's a balancing act. Mm -hmm. between, you know, what we do in the mash, what we do in the kettle, the products that are coming in, that really, really can uh, affect the density of the foam in the in the long long run. Obviously, in the finished product and uh, the type of foam. And then sometimes you want different types of foam too. I mean, if you're uh, from my earliest days in as brewing a home brewer in England and working at the pub. Uh, we didn't want a lot of foam in our beer. Um, the, the real ale's coming out, you know, about 1.4 to 1.5 volumes of CO2. So, you know, the, the customers want that pint glass full. They want to see right it. to the top. <laughs> bubbles on top, so they know it's live and active. Mm -hmm. And still in bed beer, they want a live active beer. Um, but they don't want foam. They wanted that glass to be full. And, but you, you know, cross the channel to Holland, and they want their glass half full of foam. Uh, yeah, so it all depends, you know, where you're from too, what you're looking for, for sure. and, uh, and how you're serving it, and how you're pouring it, and all those other things too, which I'm sure we'll get to in a little bit. All those but, fun uh, things. Yeah, <laughs> the, the 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 lack of foam is not a evidence necessarily of a bad beer. It could be the style of beer. So an English bitter should not have a dense foam head on it. Mm -hmm. it really, be you know, it should be there. There should be bubbles, but it shouldn't last. There should be continual lacing as you drink as the bubbles come out as it warms up, 
but it should not have a big, you know, mustache making level of foam on top. <laughs> um, whereas if you're having a Hefeweizen or a, or a you know a, a European lager in, in any city in Europe, then you'll be looking for that foam on top. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Guinness is the other extreme in the in, in, in the uh, British Isles school of brewing, and that uh, they definitely want that very thick, rich foam on top of the Guinness that makes it so wonderful. Yeah, you need that. <laughs> I feel like it's not a real Guinness if you don't have that. <laughs> yeah, and, and of course, with a Guinness phone, there's other, you know, items in play. And in mm-hmm. some of the, you know, the, the widget cans that we see over here from England and in, in, you know, uh, beers as well, uh, where that widget is in there uh, sharing nitrogen bubbles to make a, a, a denser foam and to make a, um, to, to pull the, you know, the, the nitrogen bubbles which will pull down and mm-hmm. then, Two bubbles will pull, push up, which will give that cascading effect in the glass and making a denser foam with smaller bubbles, uh, all of which, you know, make that be a kind of unique. Mm-hmm. Well, I love talking malt. Of course, we love talking malt. Uh, we are a country malt group. But could we touch a bit on how hops can contribute um, to head retention and that lovely beer foam as well? Because I know that they can play quite a part in that as well, especially with these you know, hazy IPAs and, and stuff like that. Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, you know, obviously the, the yeast is going to ferment the uh, sugars in, in, in our wort, and that's going to make us the CO2 that we're going to need. Um, but that CO2 on its own uh, will create bubbles, will obviously, you know, that, that, that come purely from the malt, but that foam probably won't last too long without hops around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, you know, the isomerization of hops um, that really, uh, you know, Binding with polypeptides reinforces the bubbles, makes them last longer. Um, you know, a hoppier, more bitter beer generally will have uh, firmer, longer-lasting bubbles. Uh, but obviously, the malts and everything that go in are, are part of it as well. But you know, a, a higher bitterness unit beer will definitely have more more foam, more positives, uh, denser, cleaner. Uh, well-defined, not, you know, sometimes you do want a rocky foam where the bubbles are in different sizes, mm-hmm. but generally you really want to have, you know, uniformity and everything, every, all the bubbles nice, tight, small, uh, dense, and la- and long-lasting too. And, and for that, it, it really is uh, the isomerization of alpha acids in hops that, uh, you know, bonds with uh, polypeptides for the proteins in from the malt and to create a, a, a more stable uh, a more solid bubble that's a possible thing but that's how i think of it anyway mm-hmm. and so that uh you know will give you uh, a foam that is long lasting and can also be you know pretty dense and high depending on obviously at the end how you serve it and pour it mm-hmm. when would you like what stage of the brewing process is you know adding these hops in really adding to that head retention oh it's the boil i mean you, in the you, the boil. you, you have to isomerize the hops which requires the boil. And so the more hops you put in early in your boil, the better foam you'll get at the end. Obviously, if you it's a it's a, a scale thing. If you're adding a ton of hops in at the very end of the boil, you'll still get some of that isomerization. Um dry hopping, you know, that's the that's the other side of this. Uh generally, to my mind and to our experience in here, dry hopping reduces the foam on beers. Um more because they they're, they're uh pulling out you know, I think the actual science behind it is that the um, the unisom the alpha acids are pulling out the isomerized alpha acids from the wort or from the beer at this point. 
So, the, you know, it's a balance. If you put a lot in, then yes, you'll be okay. If you put a little in, then you'll get that reaction of your bitterness actually dropping when you uh, put the dry hop in. And obviously, when you dry hop, you're creating nucleation points, and that will also, uh, nucleation points are pretty key in foaming anyway, but uh, that'll also cause your uh, beer to be less foamy because you're pulling those proteins out already. They'll then collapse back in and settle out in your fermenter. So by just by looking at, uh, you know, foam, I mean, we've all seen the videos of people pouring their bucket of hops into their fermenter and all of a sudden it shoots up and splashes it, hits the ceiling in the walls. And I got to... I got to witness that last week when I was out doing a collab for the very first time. That was oh, uh, yeah. pretty interesting. <laughs> exactly. And that's purely the nucleation points. That's the hops going in at a warmer temperature into the cold beer uh, and just, you know, foam, instant foam. And yeah. That happens in the kettle too at, at hot, which is much more dangerous. <laughs> but at cold, it can be pretty hazardous if you're standing up on top of a ladder pulling those hops in. Um, but yeah, because now you not only have you, first of all, flattened the beer, You've now kicked out a lot of the proteins that were around. So obviously it has to be fairly controlled. You have to be careful how you do it. But, uh, you know, the, the the dry hopping will negatively affect, negatively affect your foam initially. If you do enough of it and are very careful about how you add it, then it should have an overall, you know, no effect or maybe a very slight positive effect. But in general, dry hopping will kind of reduce your uh Foam stability, well, not your stability, but the amount of foam you're going to get. Because when you don't have the proteins there, because you've already got rid of them all, you've already precipitated them out or foamed them out, uh, then you're going to have the issue of uh, the. the you know, well, I think you, I think you bring up a really interesting point for uh, hazy IPA brewers. Um, they work so hard to put in, you know, proteins in the mash with a lot of the wheat and oat malts, um, but a lot of them are are not hopping in the kettle. And getting those isomerization of the uh, alpha acids, and then they're dry hopping at exorbitant levels. Um, so, do you have any advice for people trying to produce a hazy IPA with great foam? Um, hop products. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, YCH and the other guys, uh, Hopsteiner, everybody, they they put out uh, products that have isomerized uh, hop extracts and that sort of thing, and, and those work perfectly for maintaining the foam and for uh, creating the. Uh, um, the correct balance. You know, you get your you get your aroma. You get your um, the the other attributes you're looking for out of out of your dry hopping, mostly aroma and flavor. Um, plus, the, you've got the isomerization there. It's all pre-isomerized, so that by adding that in, you've you've, you've uh, basically leveled the playing field again. So your beer foam should be as good as it would have been otherwise. You've also got to remember that the foam, sorry, <clears throat> the proteins that form the haze are not the same proteins that form the bubbles. So that, that's a balance too, is to make sure you get those two right. And uh, I think more in the bubbles, if you think, if you think about uh, uh, the, 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 well, when you're making a cocktail, like a whiskey sour or something like that, you're using egg white, which is albumin, which is one of the proteins in malt. And when, when you whisk that up and shake it up, you get a really nice foam and froth on top that sticks and stays. In a liquid that would not normally hold, first of all, it's not carbonated, so it's just air bubbles made from foam. And you know, meringue is another example of that. Um, so if you can get that kind of a thing happening with your proteins from your beer, that's really what you're looking for. And you know, by by getting by modifying your mash and by picking the right grains, 
which might even be, uh, you know, like carapils, malts, things like that, as well as the chip malts I already mentioned, um, and wheat, um, and oat, oats, obviously. Um, then those will all, you know, help you because you do want to break out some of the proteins, but you want other proteins in there for your haze, and you want other proteins in your in there for your foam. So it's, it really is that balancing act between those three. So for hazies, it, it is relatively easy to get a good foam on them, um, but because they don't put a lot of boil hops in, it's hard to keep that foam on beer. So pre-isomerized hop extract, I guess, is a short answer to that. That's great. Thank you. I mean, we're going to touch on, let's just touch on all the ingredients while we're at it uh, that are available in brewing. Are there specific yeast strains that lead to better head retention? Uh, I mean, yeast is, there, there are, maybe, for yeast to be truly active and, and good in, in what it does, which is creating the uh, carbon dioxide and the alcohol, as far as head retention goes, there, there will be, um, you know, you, you got, your yeast obviously has to be very healthy. Uh, you, you can't leave, you, you've got to have a good sedimentation. So you want to have your yeast to flocculate out with some proteins again. Um, you don't want to leave, I mean, there, there's more probably negatives to yeast than there are positives, apart from the fact that it makes all the CO2. Um, which is a huge positive, but then from a negative point of view, there'd be, um, you know, if you leave the beer on the yeast, on the uh, on the lees in the tank for too long, um, that'll, you know, that'll definitely adversely affect your, your, your uh, protein balance in that beer, and that'll really uh, affect your foam that comes out on top. Um, from the point of view of yeast health, obviously, if you underpitch yeast, you're going to stress it, that will create certain uh reactions within the, the mash within the sorry within the uh wort and the beer that will that could adversely affect foam um but but really i mean we're talking more about uh making sure that you you pitch the right amount and the good clean amount of yeast every time i mean i'm not a huge expert on yeast but we should really have my my friend nate in here uh, he's colleague and friend Nate here, he's uh, our yeast expert here at the college, we talk about this. So I'd, I'd say I know that the adverse effects are really based on the, uh, you know, the, the, the death of yeast the, 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 in the lees and at the bottom of the fermenter where they don't work too well. Um, yeah, that's really about all I know about the yeast to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Which is totally fine. That's uh, probably a lot more than I actually know about it. So we're good. <laughs> Um, all right. So we finished brewing. We've gone through the whole process. So we did talk about this, uh, CJ Cheyenne and I kind of at the top of the episode, we discussed beer clean glassware, but you know, let's talk about the serving side of it, even the packaging side of it. Like what can you do on, you know, for package product to help maintain that, um, packaging in your brewery and being shipped out and being shipped all over the world? Like how do you maintain that, um, head retention? But I mean, it's all about, it really is. I mean, no, no matter what we do in the field, in the malt house or in the brewery, it's all what happens when it gets into that glass at the end of the day. Uh, luckily, people are moving away from drinking beer out of bottles or cans and they're drinking them in glasses more and more than in past years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now it, that that visual part of, brew, of of drinking and enjoying a beer is very important. And, uh, you know, the, you, you touched on the clean beer glass. I mean, the, the enemies of foam are, you know, uh, detergents and fats. 
So as long as your glasses are clean and beer clean, um, you, if you you know they're not going to be clean if you, when you pour that beer in, there's all the bubbles are sticking to the side of it uh, rather than nucleating from a point at the bottom of the glass. Um, if your phone disappears rapidly, that's because you know the glass probably wasn't cleaned and still had someone's lip balm or lipstick on it. That uh, you know the fats from that are just breaking down the phone as fast as you can pour it in. Basically, um, it's kind of cool if you think about the different methods of uh, how beers are poured. Uh, from you know casks where it's a hand pump where you it's it's a gentle delicate pour um, uh, with very little carbonation coming out to uh, the Guinness stout tap or, or the can with the widget in it where it's all about shearing bubbles to make the bubbles smaller uh, and you have it takes time you have to you know I don't know if anyone's been to the Guinness storehouse in Dublin but they actually teach you how to do it properly and takes like a minute and a half I think to pour Guinness properly you have to pour it and then stop and then pour again and you know, they let the foam settle out, they let the cascade clear, and, you know, that's about creating more dense proteins on the surface of the beer for the, uh, to keep the, 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 the foam and, uh, stay more stable and more, uh, thick, uh, for one better <laughs> term. Um, if you look at a Pilsner pour, I mean, at the other end of the scale with the, 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 you know, the, uh, increase in the number of people buying those, uh, Pilsner side pour taps, mm-hmm. same sort of idea. I mean, I, I remember going to beer stoops in Germany. And it would take you about two or three minutes to get a beer because they'd be pouring them, letting them sit, pouring them, letting them sit. And this was just out of casks or barrels, not necessarily with a side pour either. Um, with the side pour specifically, it's, you know, it opens and you pour that beer in and it foams, you know, two thirds to 50 to 30, you know, yeah, about 50 to two thirds of the glass is foam. Uh, and then they let that sit there and settle out and, you're thinking, oh, well, my beer's getting flat, and oh, those, all those aromas are going. Well, then they top it up, and they top it up, and they do it two or three times. And by the time it gets to you, it should have, you know, two inches of foam above the glass and an inch or two of foam in the glass, and it's like this wonderful ice cream-looking uh, glass of Pilsner that, uh, you know, it's purely due to the way it pours. If you poured it out of a can, you could probably replicate it similarly, but if you, you know, poured it uh, on a regular draft system, there's no way you'd be able to really do that. I'm loving the resurgence of these side pole taps. Yeah. I I mean it I've been I worked in the service industry forever and the first time I got to work with one, I just remember watching multiple YouTube videos on how to make how to do it properly because it's so different from what you're used to. But yeah, as soon as I see a beer on a side pole, that's probably gonna be the beer that I'm gonna order. Exactly. Yeah. And and it's part of the show too. I mean, it's you know, bring, bringing the bartender back into play. Mm-hmm. You know, gone are the days of pitchers being slammed on the table. It's now you know, watching the guy, it's all about presenting the right glass, the uh, the correct pour, you know, the right color. Sometimes you want that fancy. Sometimes you want the nice glass not to be in, make it distinctive. And I mean, the Belgians led the way in that, making, you know, all their, all their breweries to differentiate. Then they brought out a different glass with the, with the labeling and the branding on it. It uh, made a, a lot of difference. And obviously it's impacted uh, what we do over here. Mm-hmm. And those beautiful tulip glasses. Yeah. <laughs> those are my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> Possible. Is there anything coming up at Niagara College that we should know about? Um... Oh, always. <laughs> um, actually, the graduating class every semester puts on a fantastic event called Project Brew. Uh, the, the, the beers are made here. Uh, each student is responsible for their own beer. They're then responsible for marketing it, promoting it, uh, and running a beer festival here on campus. And so, you know, every, every quarter, every four months, I guess, we get a a new uh, project brew that goes on. So we've got one of those coming up in April. Uh, right now we're just 
plugging away, making lots of beers. Uh, we just had an event called Caps, Corks and Forks, which was fantastic. It's where um, our culinary students create a five course dinner and then our winery students and our brewery students pair to each course. And uh, that that was so much fun. And uh, beer actually won this one. So we we, we defeated wine in the end of the, the, uh, on the last course of all things with a fruited sour beer. So <laughs> sometimes they're phenomenal. And it's, this one is absolutely amazing. So uh, it's, yeah, we, we, we do a lot of dinners and, and fun things like that here. That and sounds like a fantastic. That sounds like a fantastic event. I will. Uh, I will try and uh, see if I can, you know, convince anybody to let me come out there for that at some point in time. Oh, definitely, it's well worth it. We had over two hundred people at that one, and the oh. last project brew we had over six hundred. So, oh wow, good events, yeah. Oh, wonderful. And run by students, which is what what it's all about, after yeah, all. Yeah, absolutely. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sean. This has been fantastic and super, super informative. Um, really, really appreciate it. And again, thank you for all of your contributions, um, especially to the Canadian brewing industry. Really just, it's, it's just been phenomenal what you've been doing out there. Oh, it's totally my pleasure. Thank you. All right. Well, great. Today, we're joined by Jeremy Cross, the QA QC manager for Jack's Abbey Craft Loggers, Framingham, Massachusetts. Jeremy has over 25 years in the craft brewing industry, working for small brew pubs, production breweries, and everything in between, uh, in locations varying as far as Alaska to Massachusetts. So thanks for coming on, Jeremy. Thanks a lot, CJ. Happy to be here. Yeah, well, we're excited to have you on. Uh, Jack's Abbey specifically uh, is a large producer craft lager with uh, an impeccable focus on quality. So um, we'd love to know, you know, a little bit more. Uh, what's your background in the industry? Uh, what brought you to Jack's Abbey and your current role? Sure. Um, I joined the brewing industry back in 1996 when I was um, about 23. Don't do the math, please. Um, <laughs> and uh, I kind of just moved around. I started as an apprentice. I, I found breweries that interested me throughout the country. Um, and basically, uh, when I, it was time for me to settle down in uh, Massachusetts, my, my uh, wife had been following me to Alaska and California. Um, I, I, that's when I met uh, Jack from Jack's Abbey. Um, I did, when I was in California, um, I did go to UC Davis. So I did the master brewers program there in 2002. Uh, so I sat for and passed the associate membership exam there. Um, and so I'm still a member of the IBD. I guess it was the IOB back then. Um, and when I worked at a brew pub chain in the Boston area, I met Jack. Uh, he was kind of a pretty green. Um, and he came in and we worked together. Um, I went, we both went our separate ways from there. Uh, I tried to open up my place. Uh, it was a not terribly successful venture. Um, and I wasn't too happy. Uh, and Jack was at my house for a barbecue and said he needed a lab manager. Um, and that was my experience. <laughs> I didn't really have much experience in the lab and, um, it was really trial by fire. So Alaska, California, Massachusetts, you, you have been everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I came very close to accepting a job offer in Germany. That would have been great, but, uh. <laughs> I, I would have had to learn German, and I just wasn't prepared for that at the time. I guess the trial, fi trial by fire was the preferred method over the German. 
Uh, exactly. That's the best way to learn, though. I mean, with that's your... way too precise with the Germans, you know. Well, can you tell us a little bit more about Jack's Abbey for our listeners? Uh, you know, your brewery is uniquely focused on lager and produces over 40,000 barrels a year, uh, which is quite an impressive feat in this market. So, yeah. Um, so Jack's Abbey has been around for uh, I think this year will be on our 12th year. Um, it went through it's been through a couple expansions. Um, I started in October of 2018. So I've been here a little over four years. Um, when Jack was first telling me he was going to start an all lager brewery, um, I kind of looked at him sideways a little bit and said, you're, you're freaking crazy. I don't know why you would do that. It's never going to work. And here I am uh, with him writing my paycheck. So um, I guess he, was, he, he got the upper hand on that one. Um, yeah, but we focus primarily on uh, lagers, some traditional styles, some um, not so traditional. Uh, I think Jack's Abbey was one of the first breweries to actually really try to do some outside the box, uh, commercial outside the box lagers. Um, I think IPL, where Jack's Abbey probably didn't invent IPL, I think we made one of the first mainstream um, India Pale lagers um Hopponius Union. Uh that's changed a bit over the years. Uh, you know, people's tastes have changed from the West Coast really heavily bitter IPAs or slash IPLs to more of a uh, softer hop focus. Uh so the IBUs have steadily crept down on that beer for, for a few years. Um but I, we're pretty happy with where it is right now. That's fantastic. So I think what brought us here today is we're talking about head retention. So let's dive right in. And, you know, uh, what research have you been involved in on this topic at Jack's Abbey? And, you know, take us through some of the things you're working on. So uh, Jack and I are both pretty obsessed with foam and head retention. Um, Jack is currently writing a, a logger book for the uh, uh, BA series. Um, so he's been doing a lot of trips to, you know, continental Europe to study historical uh, brewing styles. He did go to Siebel and went to Domins. Uh, so he spent a lot of time in Germany. And every time he comes back from Germany on a trip, he walks in the lab, pounds his fist on the bench top and says, more foam. <laughs> so, you know, then we think about ways we can we can uh, increase head retention. Because, you know, he goes over there, sits at a bar, and while we think our head retention is pretty pretty darn good over here um he goes there and like sees this massive beautiful uh foam on top of a lager that just sits there throughout the entire pint and he's you know that's what he wants and and you know we're we're looking for perfection but we're you know knowing we're not going to ever get the perfect we're trying to do best that we possibly can here so anytime he's saying more foam that's when i hit the books again um and look and watch podcasts and webinars and and research and try to find what we might be doing wrong what we might be doing well how to accentuate the well and minimize the bad um you know i did like i said i went to davis and and charlie bamforth was our um professor there and it was i think it was his first year at davis and so he had a, a profound impact on my thinking about phone yeah, he's pretty much written the book on foam, if I'm not mistaken, right? That one's available uh, through the ASBC, or it's one of the... Yeah, uh, he, yes, he definitely has. Uh, he's probably, he's written many books on foam. Um, I remember the the first day I sat down at, in school and he introduced himself, he, he 
said something. And I was like, I, I went to my desk mate. I said, I, I don't know if I heard that right. Is, did he just call himself the Pope of foam? And uh, my desk mate said, yeah, that's, that's his name. I think that might be one of the best brewing nicknames you could have. It's a pretty good title. <laughs> it is. And, and, you know, I, I will in no way profess to be the Pope of foam or the Archbishop of foam. I'm more of like a, uh, a street preacher on a upside down milk carton, like screaming into the ether about, you know, hydrophobic polypeptides, stuff like that. Well, that's a perfect segue right into to malt. Um, so why don't we, uh, you know, what, what have you been doing on the malt side at Jack's Abbey to really develop good head retention? So we kind of adhere to a philosophy that um, everything you need in a regular beer uh, from a foam positive standpoint is there for you, right? If you're using just Pilsner or two row or, you know, maybe a little Vienna, something like that, you're going to have all the, the proteins that you need. You're using, if you're making a well hopped beer, um, even moderately hopped beer, everything you have there should be enough for a good foam and good foam stability. Um, we generally find that Everything we're doing to try to improve our foam and our head retention has to do with minimizing the negatives. So we don't use things like carafoam, dextrin malt, stuff like that. Um, you know, we certainly see positive head retention from darker malts, but that's not necessarily, we're not using darker malts for head retention. We're using them because it, it's, you know, that's what the style calls for. Um, so from a malt standpoint, we just use our basic, you know, our, our house lager is really um, just Pilsner Malt in Vienna. Um, and and we just kind of work from there. Uh, we do experiment a little bit, you know, if we're going to do a traditional Czech style, triple decocted beer, or double decocted beer, something like that, we might use some slightly underfied malts, uh, under, un, under modified malts, sorry, um, in, in order to really capture what the decoction process it's supposed to be about. Um, but with regards to using specific malt specifically for head retention, we we don't really do that. You mentioned decoction, and I think that's a great point to bring up. Have you found that that has an effect on the head retention? So we do our decoction a little differently. All our traditional styles, um, we're not doing multiple decoctions most of the time. Um, and our final decoction is usually, um, the one decoction we do is generally a decoction to mash out temperatures. Um, so yeah, you know, if you, if you think about what the, in that vein, what it might do, there are some mired reactions obviously occurring during decoction. Um, so that's going to help with bone retention. You know, if, if you have your proteins, bonding with carbohydrates uh, and, and some beta-glucans to help a little more viscosity and slow the, the um, foam collapse rate, um, you can get a better foam. Um, whether doing a single decoction the way we do it shows an appreciable difference, I don't really know that. We haven't, we haven't really done trials like that. You mentioned uh, that you guys are more focused on minimizing or removing the negatives. Um, yes. Can you, can you walk us through some of those? <laughs> yeah, I could probably walk you through a lot of those. Um, so there's, there's negatives you're going to see in almost every part of the process. Um, I, I guess we don't really need to right now address 
you know, where a majority of the foam issues happen, it could be at dispense, right? Um, mm-hmm. it's, well, you might be doing everything right in the brew house, but the dispense could be an issue, but that's not really, I guess, what we're talking about right now. Um, with regards to things we do hot side, um, temperature is important. Um, thickness of, of mash is important. Um, so, for example, we were starting to see that we were getting some poor foam uh, poor head retention on certain beers that we normally get good head head retention on. Um, We decided, we saw that we, maybe our temperature calibration for our um, uh, mash ton might've been a little off. So we decided to raise the temp a little bit um, just by a few degrees to raise the strike temp. And we were getting a slightly higher um, initial mash temp to, you know, around 147, 148, as opposed to 144, 145. Um, and we saw an appreciable difference when that happened. Um, generally we try to have a slightly thinner mash, um, because if your mash is too thick, you don't have enough water, you're not going to be able to hydrolyze, uh, those, those foam positives like uh, lipid transfer protein and, and, um, and protein Z. So we have a slightly thinner mash for that purpose. Um, we've added... Patco or anti-foam um, in the kettle. We were we were finding we were getting some excessive uh, foaming in the kettle when you would see the work come out of the calandria and just kind of shoot across. It's not designed great. Uh, it would just kind of shoot across the top and then just cause all this foaming. Um, so we would have to add some some uh, anti-foam there because the more you can prevent foaming throughout the entire process, the more you maintain and hold on to those um, uh, foam positive proteins, uh, down, down the line. You always want to minimize foaming in every, every process. Um, that's pretty much everything we've, we've done thus far. Hot side, um, cold side, I would say, again, minimize the foaming. Um, one of the nice things we've been doing, the nice things about working in a lager brewery is every, every lager beer we produce, we spund. So we have um, natural carbonation uh, for people who don't understand funding. It's basically capturing a bit of that fermentation that's occurring. So then you're, you're closing up the tank, bunging it up uh, with a basically a pressure relief valve that that's dialed into a certain um, pressure. And you are then capturing the CO2 that's being produced. And we can find that if we fund it at the right the right time during the process, we will get uh, the right carbonation, our target carbonation. And why that's important with regards to foam is that if we were going to force carb a beer, it goes back to what I was just talking about, is that anytime when you force carb a beer, you're going to cause bubbles to occur. And those bubbles might precipitate out um, foam positive proteins that you've been working on keeping in your beer. So the less we have to bubble through uh, our beer, the better it's going to be for the uh, head retention. Um, one other thing we worked on that was pretty interesting was we essentially, again, we're trying to figure out why we we're getting certain foaming problems. And we thought perhaps yeast stress might've been an issue. That's one of the downsides of spunding is you do get yeast stress, right? You're going to, you're building up pressure in that tank. 
you already have a lot of hydrostatic pressure just just sitting on top of that yeast. But if you are now spunning up the tank, you're creating a pretty high pressurized environment. So what that can do is is put stress on the yeast. The yeast can release a a, a, a enzyme called protonase A, which is really bad for foam. Um, it's just going to eat up all the foam positive proteins. Um, same with autolysis. If you're creating a lot of stress on your yeast, the yeast could autolyze. So then, you know, uh, foam negative enzymes will leak out of the cell and then break down your foam. Um, so that was one of the things we were concerned with. So instead of, um, normally we just would spund at the tail end of fermentation at the same temperature we ferment at, which would be, you know, 48 degrees. Now what we do is we add this and we, and the spunding device would be set to 0.8 bar. Um, now at the tail end of the fermentation, what we're doing is lowering the temperature at spunding to 46 and then the next day, 44. Um, and we attach, we lower the pressure on the spunding device. So instead of 0.8 bar, you know, even just going down 0.7, 0.6 bar, um, we were seeing, uh, better foam. And what was interesting is on those beers that we do that with, we started seeing lower pHs in the can, which indicated to us that we were getting some degree of autolysis that was raising the pH at a certain point. That's pretty uh, amazing that you're talking about the yeast side of things. I don't think a lot of breweries consider yeast health uh, when they're talking about their foam. Um, do you guys have pretty strict rules around how many generations you go with your yeast and yeast cell counting? Yep. yep. Um, we, we are very strict with our yeast. Um, we try not, you know, the, the general, you know, the, the literature might tell you try not to go above 10 generations. Uh, we generally don't hit 10. We'll generally try to start repitching at eight. Uh, we've recently come in the last couple of years, finally commissioned a propagator so we can propagate a good, healthy, uh, healthy pitch, um, pretty easily. Um, we do a lot of cell counts. Um, we recent in the last year, we, we purchased a salometer from uh, Nexalom, which is a, you know, automated cell counter, which is great. It gives you a lot of specificity, a lot of, you know, it's counting thousands of cells versus when you look through a hemocytometer and your eyes start going blurry at like 50 cells. So it's a lot more specific. And the nice thing about the salometer is you can also test for vitality. Um, so we can do vitality and figure out, um, well, maybe we are on generation, only generation eight, but the vitality has kind of dropped a little bit. So maybe we should try to go ahead and start a new pitch. Um, so that's the yeast side of things is, is, is terribly important. Um, if you have an incomplete fermentation, um, you're going to leave behind, uh, things like, uh, amino acids that, that don't get consumed. Um, those are going to be uh, short chain fatty acids, which are also really bad for, for head retention. So having a good fermentation is extremely important. Um, and also the other thing you want to do in the fermentation is if you can minimize the foam, uh, lagers, since they, they, they ferment slower and colder, uh, temperatures, you're going to get less foaming than, than an ale. Does your, uh, tank design and size play a factor in that. So I'm, I'm assuming you guys are set up, uh, you know, to appropriately not have beers fermenting and foaming out all the time. 
we have, I mean, yeah, uh, all of our tanks have uh, pretty much the standard 25% headspace. Um, you know, for the most part, we're not dry hopping any of our loggers or with the exception of a couple. Um, so we also don't have to worry about, you know, dry hopping and then having those hop bombs come out at you with all that foam and nucleation. Um, so we're not taking a lot of hop showers here, which is great. Um, the, yeah, so our tanks, our tanks are, are most of our, um, tanks where we do our, we'll do four turns, 60 barrel turns into 240 tank. Um, or if we do high gravity brewing on a lower, uh, lower ABV beer, we might do three eighties. Um, so we will get a fair amount of headspace in there. Um, and yeah, we, we, we don't find that we're getting a lot of foaming in these tanks with these, with these fermentations. Well, cool. And I think, uh, like you brought up earlier in the podcast, uh, we're getting to what a lot of people view as the most important part is, you know, the actual dispensing and serving of the beer. Um, so can you walk us through some of the measures you all take to ensure that that beer is poured with the beautiful foam you've been working on this whole time? Sure. Um, so, so, if you are ever experiencing a foam issue and it's, it's at the tap, you know, or maybe in a, 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 a place you're selling your beer to calls you up and says, Hey, your beer is flat or your beer is too foamy, whatever. Um, always work from there and work backwards. A majority of the time you're going to find that's where the problem is. We're lucky we have a tap room and we do distribution. So I get all the, um, complaints when, uh, of, about anything. Um, and so when someone calls and complains and says, Hey, I bought a six pack of beer. They're all flat. They pour terrible. Um, well, first I'm going to find that can cause we, we keep a beer library. I can find that can and see what it is. I'll look back at the CO2 and all that stuff. And then I'll find if we have that beer, you know, on draft and see how they compare to one another. And, you know, maybe the draft is, is the, the can might pour the head we expect, but the draft, not so much. You know, then you have to figure out, um, is it glassware? Is it, are they serving, uh, is it, is the gas mixture right? The pressure right? Um, is there, you know, are, are there lipids? Is the person who's, who's saying there's a poor foam, uh, you know, wearing a lot of lipstick, right? Is, 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 um, there's so many things that can happen on the dispense side. Um, one of the things that's important is to, a, train your bartenders, right? Train, train them to, to know what a proper pour is. Um, I remember last winter I was going Christmas shopping with, uh, Christmas tree shopping with my wife. Um, and since I'm Jewish, it's not my favorite activity, but she, um, to placate me, she said, we'll go to a local brewery afterwards. And I remember we bellied up to the bar and, and she looked at me and my eyes were like twitching and I was like visibly agitated. And she's like, what's wrong? And, and I looked and I saw the bartenders were pouring the beer, you know, all the way up to the rim of the glass, zero head. And, and I was just like, and I knew the owner of the place. And I, I thought, boy, I, he would not be happy if he saw this. Um, and, you know, we, we drink with our eyes. If there's not a good, uh, good head of foam on the beer, you're automatically going to think there's quality issues. So, you definitely want to train your bartenders. I think a really good thing to do is, is if you have glassware in your um, tap room, have a pour line on it, 
right? That's going to give your bartenders a target. This is 14 ounces. This is 16 ounces. This is 12 ounces. And then everything above that should be foam. Um, it does two things. One, it shows them the right way, way to pour it. But also, you're always going to have someone in your tap room at a bar saying, hey, you're ripping me off. They see foam and they're like, you, you know, that's not beer. You're, you know, you owe me two more ounces of beer. At least that line will tell you, no, you're, here's the 16 ounces you're getting. The rest is really decorative. Um, so those are two of the things I would, I would highly recommend from a, a tap room standpoint. This is great. Um, I think it's like super, super interesting to just like every aspect of the process from choosing your ingredients to pouring it into the glass to choosing your glassware affects the head retention and the foam retention in a beer. And it's just like super interesting to look all the way through that. Um, and so the first I've really heard about it with um, in regards to the spending valve. Um, I am going to throw out there if anybody wants more information on spending. We did do an episode last season. Uh, season three, episode 15 is all on spending. Um, but I don't know if we really dove into the head retention part of it. So that's that was super interesting. Thank you. Yeah, no, it, we, it was pretty, pretty wild. I was, you know, I was looking back at all our notes um, and, you know, we we every time we we package a beer, we run it through the alkalizer and, it, you know, and, and we do all the testing on it. So when I was looking at the foam testing results and, and the pH results, and I kept seeing that lower pH on those ones we were messing around with the lower pressure and the higher foams, you know, it really, it really kind of hit home that, that we did do something to uh, help alleviate the issues we were seeing from yeast stress. Is there a simple test uh, breweries can do in their own breweries to be testing head retention and foam properties? Yes. Um, there are a lot of different tests. Some can be very expensive. You know, Halfman's has the uh the machine you can do the Nibom test on, Nibom test on, um, where essentially you have this like electrodes going into the, you know, into the foam and then dropping with the foam and counting the time. And I remember I was actually talking to Jamie Shear, who's, uh, who's the longtime quality lead at Harpoon about, you know, I figured they have all these resources and they might have one of those. And I said, do, do you have one of these? He's like, no, we have eyes. Like we, we know that we know what it looks like, but why, why do we want to spend $20,000 on a machine that, that we can look at, but there are cheaper versions, uh, cheaper ways you can measure foam. Um, if you went on ASBC and looked at the Sigma method, um, that's one we do. Uh, it's very cheap. It's very easy. It's not of all the testing we do. It's the least precise and the least accurate, but for that matter, so is reading uh, wort or beer with a hydrometer, um, but we do that too, right? If you had five people read a hydrometer, you're going to get five different answers on what the uh, gravity is. Um, so a quick overview of the Sigma method. It's pretty easy. You have this, this glass funnel, um, and you're basically going to pour beer into it, create a foam up to about this 800 milliliter mark. The, funnel, the, the glass funnel has a little tap on the bottom, and essentially you're going to let that foam sit for 30 seconds. Uh, you're going to drain off any foam that's collapsed into beer and then wait, you know, something like 200 seconds. And then essentially you're going to pour off the beer again, collapse the foam with, with uh, isopropyl alcohol, um, and, and you're going to measure the time. And the, the, you're going to have time versus 
amount of foam you've collected versus the amount of beer, you just plug that into a calculator, it's going to give you a number. Um, that number in and of itself doesn't mean a lot, but if you're doing things to try to um, it, to try to improve your head retention, it gives you enough data points to to say, okay, the sigma number was at 87 for this beer before we started working on this this particular project, and now it jumped up to 103 um, consistently. So the one thing I would suggest is if you do go on the ASBC, look at the method. Um, because of its um, subjectivity, if you have multiple people in your lab or multiple people who might be measuring your foam, try to have the same person do it each time because it, it, it is subject to how they pour it and how they time it and when they decide to, to stop collecting the beer off the bottom of the sample cock. Um, because all these little things that change can change your sigma number quite a bit. So if you have the same person doing it, it gives you kind of continuity. And, and while your number may not be accurate, it'll be more precise. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. I think that's uh, most people can use some of those small tips. A lot of breweries get intimidated when you're talking about QA, QC. Uh, a lot of small brewers don't think they can do some of these tests at their, their brewery. So much appreciated. Yeah. Is there anything else going on at Jack's Abbey that we should know about? Our lovely listeners should know about. <laughs> um, well, yeah. I, so with regards to um, the restaurant, I think I mentioned earlier, uh, our tap room is going to be closed for a little bit because we're going through a, a major renovation here. Um, we are continually adding tanks to add more capacity. Um, you know, we've taken on a few contracts here and there. So um, we're, basically never sitting still we're always trying to improve always trying to improve whether it's um things we can find in the lab like our salometer that improves with uh, uh cell counts or whether it's um our relatively um new canning line which is really a showpiece and and does so much better things for our beer than our old line um yeah, we're 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 just constantly trying to grow and try, constantly trying to expand into going into other markets. And because you know, I still think even though people talk about the the beer landscape being saturated, um, it's not saturated yet with good loggers. There are a lot more breweries um, um, working on lager for sure, um, but it's there's still room to grow in that in that department. We believe. Oh, 100% agree with that. And you can't hide a lot in a lager. So no, no, it, it, it is fun, though, because those of us who are, you know, lager brewers, we like, you know, we like to stick together. So we, we do a lot of collaborations. You know, we had a we had a fun collaboration with uh, Ashley Carter. She came down here from Bierstadt, um, made 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 some fun, fun beer with her, um, other brewers as well. Um, it's it's that's the fun part of the industry, right? You know, just just getting together with other brewers and and being able to you know i can't go home and 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 start talking about the how how much i appreciate foam to my wife you know she <laughs> she really loves a good beer but uh you know eventually she's just like we we just shut up and and, and take the dogs out i think we all have those people in our lives that are like can you stop being so picky about things <laughs> yeah exactly all exactly. my friends get mad at me when i don't want my beer in a frosted mug i'm like look <laughs> it's my thing <laughs> 
Yeah, my my thing is the shaker pint. I will I will you know shout out to the heavens uh, to to if I ever walk into a, a, a you know tap room and see a shaker pint, I I I just kind of start twitching. Yeah. No, thank you. <laughs> well, awesome, Jeremy. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been absolutely fantastic. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you for joining us in this episode on all things head retention. Before we log off for the week, a few exciting announcements. Next month is Women's History Month. So stay tuned for episodes about the Pink Boots International Women's Day Collab Brew and Women's History and Brewing. We also still have Pink Boots Spot Hops available for purchase. Reach out to your sales rep for more information. And also a huge thanks to Jeremy and John for joining us today. Be sure to check out Niagara College's brewing program and Jack's Abbey Craft Loggers. We will see y'all next time.